Hello and welcome to Master the Moment. I'm Joe. And I'm Christian. And Joe and I are the co-founders of the Culinary Executive Mastermind. And in this podcast, Joe and I are going to share with you our knowledge, our experience, and our expertise to help you to create a better life for yourself, for your family, for your career, and for your business. Welcome to another episode of Master the Moment. Myself, Joe Rodriguez, Chef Christian Fisher, and our special, special guest, Chef Jeffrey Mora. Chef, take it away. Um, We are so excited to speak with Chef Jeffrey. I I heard so much about you, Chef, and and Chef Joe is a big fan of you. So I'm looking forward to kind of getting to know you a little bit more and, and have our listeners learn a little bit about about your journey. Every time I hear about your journey, it reminds me very much of my own, you know, working in, in uh, many different countries. So with that, why don't you start out, give us the, the two-minute cliff note who Chef Jeffrey is. Sure. Um, God, I started my career 35 plus years ago. Uh, did a formal apprenticeship at the Century Plaza Hotel, Weston Hotels, under a certified master chef. Raymond Hoffmeister, uh, graduated there in 88, basically. So this, um, from there, uh, I worked mostly in California and in the Netherlands, uh, I've been all over, uh, came back, the family's business runs airport concessions and helped start that in 1990. Was a corporate chef at the New Zealand Trade Board for nine years helped launch Savannah Venison uh, with that group, uh, amongst other things. Was a chef of the LA Lakers for eight years under Phil Jackson. So two championship runs, well, three, two, two wins. Um, design development work uh, with another partner, everything from Royal Caribbean Day Ports, the freestanding restaurants, kiosks, mobile. About seven years ago, I was stupid enough to go into the food truck business. I think that that was a good idea, Uh, but I quickly learned what the industry actually needed um, was to help these small mom and pops navigate the corporate environment, to be able to work for Compass Group and Sodexo and Delaware North and companies like that. Uh, So I formed a company and started to help these guys develop the ability to work for these people. So we help manage mobile solutions now, whether it's pop-ups, kiosks, station takeovers, food trucks, for campuses, hospitals, BNI, NASCAR, PGA, concerts, convention centers on a day-to-day basis. That, that's a pretty amazing career. <laughs> so what, what made you go into food service? I always liked to cook. I was, I always did enjoy it. My mother was an exceptional cook. Um, and my father's, one of my father's customers ran Oral Wheat Old Country Bakery uh, out here in California. So my dad wanted, you know, asked him, what should I do? If I wanted to go into cooking. And he introduced me to the head of the chef de cuisine out here who had a small little pre-starter program to mm-hmm. see if you like cooking. I really did. And from there, I got hired in the pantry at the Century Plaza when the tower opened. 
and six months later, I got uh, into the apprenticeship program. That's amazing. So if you look yeah. back in your career, what is a highlight or what is something you're really proud of you, you were able to accomplish in your 35 plus year career? Um, I was on the U.S. Colony Olympic team twice in 92 wow. and 96. That was a, a, a goal of mine back then. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, that's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, it's constantly changing, right? Yeah. My old chef told me, he would call, we had a banquet chef at the hotel, a chef by the name of Jimmy Wong, who was Walter Roth, who you may or may not remember that name, but he started the apprenticeship program in the U.S. Yep. along with, um, what's the chef's name at the Green Buyer now? I forgot. Um, or the two of them started it off, right? Mm-hmm. And every chef in Western hotels, if they wanted to be an executive chef, had to go through that guy's station. <laughs> if he didn't sign off on them, if they were done, they were not going to be an executive chef, right? And Jimmy would always say, that guy's a shoemaker, right? <laughs> what do you mean shoemaker? The guy doesn't want to cook anymore or learn anymore. He might as well be a shoemaker. Yep. So he was done, right? He thought he was good enough to, you know, basically get the fuck out, move yeah. over. You know? <laughs> so I realized that a long time ago. We're only as good as our last meal. Yep. Awards, accolades, all that doesn't mean anything. The last meal you served was not good. That's all anyone's going to remember. Mm-hmm. So if we don't continue to, to try to grow and change and educate ourselves every day, we're going to fall behind really quickly. Mm-hmm. I would yeah, I would definitely say that's how you've maneuvered all the way through even COVID right now because you're constantly reinventing and and trying to be on the cutting edge, chef. Yeah, it, so both my parents were Holocaust survivors. My dad was in four camps and on Schindler's List. My mom was in one. My my dad was taken when he was twelve. Um, they both met actually in New York. Uh, 1949. Um, but they taught me a, a great deal, right? But my father always taught me a, to have a huge tolerance for ambiguity, right? Mm-hmm. Most people or a lot of people are never good unless they're short of that paycheck every Friday. They can't work, right? They, they just are frozen, right? For me, uh, every month I just figure it out the way I grew up, right? My dad had a barber shop at a general store in Stony Brook growing up. We had pizza parlors. We had all sorts of different businesses. We moved out to California. You know, my dad didn't have his barber's license. So we were selling stuff at the swap meet, you know, and things like that until he got the license. And, you know, so every month we just figured it out. So I never, I, I never really was worried about the money. Mm-hmm. And also that chef at that program, when I first started, always said to me, if you chase the money, now you're going to chase it your whole life. Mm-hmm. Go get the right yeah, job, yeah. Yep. figure it out. You know, the money will come. And yep. it's true, right? The, the, the older we three get, right? <laughs> we realize how much we actually know, right? We're not running from, and a lot of them, I get it, the culinary school kids and others, right? That they're in the hole before they start. Yep. 40 land in the hole they take a better job 
because they need to pay off that debt, but that's not going to get them where they need to go, right? They still got to learn how to cook. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest problem today, right? They, yeah. they don't take time to really, you know, they get a little bit of the basics in culinary school, and I'd say less than a, a lot less than an apprenticeship, a great deal less, because each class is three or four weeks. Mm -hmm. I understand how much you can learn in three to four weeks. Yep. All profession is all about repetition and doing yep. it over and over again. And even then, it's still never right, right? We practiced for four years for the Olympic team in that menu, and we were still screwing around up until the day before. <laughs> it was, you know, it just mm -hmm. is part of who we are, right? Once it's perfected, we put it aside and move on to the next thing. Right. We don't continue to go down that road. Yeah, I always look, my, my oldest daughter did Kung Fu for many years, and I always thought Kung Fu is very much like cooking. It's not that you do 4,000 things one time, you do one thing 4,000 times until it becomes repetitious and, and it becomes second nature. And for me, I agree with what you said. Um, <clears throat> you know, I always talk to Joe. I realize the more I learn, the more I know that I don't know anything. And for me, I think that's my biggest advice to anybody coming into the industry. So what is your advice? Somebody trying to come into the industry, the stuff you went through, what, what we currently go through as, as a nation with COVID, if somebody has a passion for food, how, what advice would you give them to get into this industry? I would say go find somebody to learn from, first mm -hmm. and foremost. Hotels are great places for that, country clubs, because they have still the traditional setup to a point of the garmage, the saw station, the banquet station, you know, the, the line cooks, you know, the pastry shop, a lot of them. So they still have the ability for you to learn in these different areas. Right? Some, you got some even have butchery. Yeah. Very <laughs> few, but, um, you need to find the right mentor to begin with. You yeah. know, there at all culinary school, you know, some, I'm not going down that road, you know. Do I believe in it? Yeah, I do. I think it's important, but I think it's, I think you get way more out of culinary school if you have a basic knowledge before and cook, yep. but don't understand what you're doing, right? You're doing stuff, but you don't understand the, the mallard reaction or other things or why things work. Going to culinary school helps you understand the why, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a good basic understanding. But if you think it's going to make you a sous chef when you graduate, you're a schmuck, you know? <laughs> but or I, a shoemaker. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand if you go and you own a, a culinary school and you tell people, hey, you come to my school for four years, it's going to cost you $200,000 to be part of it. And then when you're done, you start with minimum wage. It's not attractive, you know? So I tell you, you're a great chef too for 200 grand, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, chef i'm really fascinated with your background and working in 20 plus uh countries how did you get started working or, or seeking employment in a different country it was so I, I always loved to travel my parents always traveled right so in 1987 there was a dutch master chef who came to the hotel by the name of cost spikers Mm -hmm. uh, really well known at the time to Michelin star uh, that summer he invited chef to, to go 
to, to visit, right? Mm -hmm. So I had my vacation. I had family in Europe, right? I said, Chef, can I go? And he said, yeah, you can get your way there. You meet me in Munich. We'll, we'll drive up. And so that was my first experience in that culinary world on two and three Michelin star level as an apprentice. To be able to see that was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. After wow. I graduated, he and I became very close, like family. Uh, his daughters are like my sister's. We still communicate on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. He introduced me to a lot of people. My chef was Swiss in the fine dining room. I did a lot of work with him. And the culinary team helped me get in a lot of places. In Brazil, in South Africa, you know, that, that was a lot of, you know, where that came from. Just being able to travel with the culinary team and cook and work and do those things mm -hmm. and go back, right, was a big part of it. New Zealand, my, my buddy was on the New Zealand Culinary Olympic team. That's mm -hmm. how we met him, an apprentice. <clears throat> the New Zealand Amazing. Culinary team came to visit the hotel. The chef didn't have time. He assigned me to him. You know, those guys busted <laughs> their, their hunt for five days. They had two days left in California with nothing to do. I grabbed my dad's car and I toured him around for two days wow. so they could see something. And, and we became best friends. You know, so when the time came for the New Zealand trade, we, mm -hmm. we met up. I saw him a couple of years later. He was going to promote uh, the venison, the Savannah venison, and hire one guy in LA to do the whole country. And I said, look, that's, you know, the guy may be good enough for LA, mm -hmm. but if he goes to New York, no one's going to know who the hell he is, and there's not going to be any credibility. So yep. why do it? You know, it's going to be a lot better for you to find the right guys in each market to do this. Mm -hmm. So we developed chefs like David Burke and Charlie Palmer and Rick Moonen, uh, Kevin and Kent Rathman, all these guys all along the country, all around the country to be the ambassadors, right? Mm -hmm. So there's credibility in each market for them to do, promote, bring in other chefs, show them the product. So from that, it led to doing more and more for the trade board. Uh, and that's how I got involved with New Zealand. That, that, that's amazing. So how did all of that translate in what you do today? And talk to our listeners a little bit. What does your day consist of today? And, and how did you manage, you know, your way through COVID? And, and how did you, you know, use mindset or whatever you want to call it, not to give up? Because I, I always use the example, we live on this stretch of highway. At the beginning of the highway, we have a, a shack where somebody does um, barbecue. And he is expanding on the other side of the highway, same amount of people is a fine dining Italian restaurant, which is boarded up. So both were dealt the same cards, both had the same opportunities. How come somebody, you know, really ran with it and expands? He, and he said, this is, this is, COVID has been the best thing for me. I will open up three, four more locations. How, how did you work through that? And how do you see this working out? Well, first and foremost, right? The, the younger we were in this profession, the more it was my way. Right, <laughs> we're gonna eat what I cook for you and like it. Right? I'm doing it my way. Right, mm -hmm. I was in your 20s and 30s. <laughs> we're older, right? It, it literally does come down to what the customer wants. Right, like mm -hmm. it really care to a point. You know, they're paying me or whatever. I should be giving them exactly what they want. Right, mm -hmm. That's our job. Right, it, you know my. I was fortunate enough on the Olympic team to, 
to meet Chef Paul Bredon. Yeah. And he became literally family. Mm-hmm. He was my godfather, mentor. You know, he really did treat me like his godson. Mm-hmm. We traveled the world together. Um, literally, myself, his chef, the, the whole thing was still really close even after Chef passed. But no one taught me more about food other than Cus and him. Yeah. And I would put something, right? And he would give me something, right? And instead of asking the question, is it too spicy? Is it acidic? Is it too salty? You know, what's it missing? That never was the question in the beginning. It's how does it make you feel? Yep. Wow. And the first time he asked, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel warm, happy? You know, what feeling does it invoke when you mm-hmm. put that in the mouth? Love it. Right? Love it. What's at the end of the day, that's it every single time. The rest mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You know, it can look pretty, you know, that if it doesn't feel or evoke an emotion, mm-hmm. an emotional response, then it's no good because that's what brings up every memory. Every memory that every human being has, yeah. good ones, wow. usually revolve around the meal. I had the opportunity to spend some time with him of what people don't know about him. He went out of his way to take care of the people he he was connected with. I mean, yep. he took care of people. He was amazing. And and he said something to me. I use this quite often. He said, you know, we talked about his product wasn't the cheapest on the market. And he said, Christian, remember qualities long remember after price is forgotten. And if you build a emotional connection, um, the, the price is secondary. People will pay for good quality and if they feeling being taken care of and uh, as amazing, he was an amazing human being, a great chef. And I think more than that, he helped more people than people actually know about him. Yep. I mean, he was he was somebody who got out of his way and, and helping me and some of my friends, a really an amazing human being. He was, yeah, no, beyond a chef, he was probably the, the kindest, gentlest human being I've ever known. Mm-hmm. Right? I know a lot of those stories about helping his staff, his employees. Yep. You know, getting a phone call at two in the morning to get him out of jail, you know, those types of calls um, <laughs> or industry, right? Yeah. But, but I will tell you, you know, the very first time the head of the, the plant, Magic Seasonings, right? Yeah. She told me the first story when she went to work for, I, I don't think people know he had a superpower. Mm-hmm. Very few human beings that had that, right? So the very first time she put together, I don't know if it was the black and red fish magic or the meat magic, right? It's a 300 pound batch and they were short 10 pounds of onion powder and 10 pounds of garlic powder. But they didn't want to tell him, right? Mm-hmm. Figure what the hell he wouldn't know, right? He tasted the batch and he said to her, it's good, but it needs 10 pounds of onion powder, 10 pounds of garlic powder. On the nose, right? We were, he was our team coach for the Olympic team. Yeah. And we were doing... I don't think most people know he was a sweet potato sharecropper. The family was, right? I did not know that. Yeah. They were sharecroppers, right? Sweet potatoes in Appaloosa. Um, and they, so we had a, a sweet potato and parsnip tart on a venison dish that we were doing for Luxembourg, I believe, right? So he shifted the, the sweet potatoes in for us. And they, we were doing a thing at the California Culinary Academy at the time, right? 
we made the, the tart, right? Sweet potatoes, yams, shallots, cream, nutmeg, the whole thing, right? And he cased the tart. He goes, you didn't use the Beauregard sweet potatoes. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because yeah. you didn't use the right sweet potatoes. I mean, all that stuff blended, right? Wow. You're full of shit. Now we, you know, chef goes, no way, you didn't, right? So they look under the table. There was the case of the Beauregard's not open. Wow. That's amazing. We used the wrong ones. The wrong ones. They just grabbed them out of the walk-in, not knowing. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, when we made it the right way, it tasted completely different. <laughs> I mean, but that's him, right? It, it was the first time he taught me to make gumbo. We were in Reno, right? And we were doing an event. He goes, come on, it's your turn, right? Five times trying to make the roux in the pan, right? Dumping it out. <laughs> but every hour for 12 hours, we went back and tasted that gumbo and the way he added flavors and built those flavors and how every hour of that cooking, the yep. flavors change. Yeah. I, I, I can't tell you the, the value in, in understanding that, right? He just, I don't know, he taught me more than I'll, I'll ever forget or remember, right? But it, it literally was taking care of people, right? Wow. And not compromising your values. Mm -hmm. Chef never Love that. Love that. Right? Yep. Never opened, because he didn't feel... Right, never was about money ever. Right, Agreed. I mm -hmm. remember after Katrina. Um, in fact, it was funny pre Katrina, a friend of mine who I met doing Big Brothers Big Sisters here in LA was the vice president of post production for Sony Motion Pictures, a guy by the name of Jimmy Honore, 12 brothers and sisters. His brother was General Russell Honore, who you may, yeah, who you, yeah. you know, came in after FEMA, cleaned it all up. Is now on Capitol Hill, right? Um, just an amazing human being, right? So I was in Jimmy's office. I had introduced Paul to, to Jimmy in Vegas on one trip. And they're both from Appaloosa, the same hometown, right? So they got along, I mean, great, right? Um, Paul was going to Korea to do a trade show and some stuff. I was in Jimmy's office. I said, Paul's going to Korea. He said, what? I said, yeah, he goes, my brother's in charge of the Korean theater over there. The general was at the time. He picked Paul up at the airport, took him through customs, got him on the helicopter, toured him around the whole country. Paul cooked for the troops there. He cooked for the officer's mess. You know, came back home. Katrina hits, right? Mm -hmm. Paul's laid up in uh, Arkansas um, waiting it out, right? And he calls, we can't get back with we ain't got FEMA passes to get back in. So I called Jimmy. He called the general. He got Paul the FEMA passes. And they were cooking out of the back of the plant, feeding the National Guard in that for, yeah. I don't know, nine, ten months afterwards and helped Paul get back on his feet, right? Mm -hmm. I remember when he and I talked about it, he lost, when he reopened the restaurant, he lost more than $2 million mm -hmm. in the first year. He goes... You know, if I don't open and Leah Chase doesn't open here, who's setting the example for our industry in New Orleans? If I don't come back, we're dead, right? Paul hung on, you know, through every, I mean, that city has had more disasters since Katrina, and mm -hmm. I don't know what, right? Yeah. But he didn't care about the money ever, right? He was there to spend on family and friends, period. So I learned, 
a, a hugely valuable lesson. We, my wife and I got married after Katrina at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. chef, and I, chef and I sat down and, and, and um, my wife and I decided that we wanted to have our wedding, a destination wedding in New Orleans mm-hmm. to, wow. to put money into the economy, right? So we had a destination wedding, 150 people came, right? Wow. Um, chef shut down the restaurant on a Saturday night for my wedding. Wow. Uh, I mean, think about that, right? Mm-hmm. We had, he, uh, so what we did was we didn't want any money. Chef picked some families in need that worked for him that really suffered during Katrina. And we just asked people to make donations to those families. Wow. We didn't ask for any wedding, get nothing. We didn't want anything. So that, that's how we did our wedding. And Chef cooked one of the stations. That, that's unbelievable. So that's I, the fine example of paying it forward in this business. Fine yeah, example. I, I mean, for us, you know, as, as we, you know, working on our mastermind, it's really what you just said is all the principles we believe in. You know, you need to pay it forward, uh, teach and, and, and have somebody teach you to cut your learning curve in half and have a mentor. I currently have two mentors and I always had mentors in my life and I learn more from them than from anything else. And uh, you, you said something in the beginning that uh, really struck a chord with me and that's really around being coachable because there's so much information out there, people doing amazing things and being open to that and just show up and be coachable um, helps you really look at things you know, from a total different place. And you probably know that better than I. I mean, for me, I worked in 17 different countries. And the amazing thing for me around that was that the problems were the same, that the names and the faces right. changed. You know, people burned a stock and people <laughs> they made the same mistake. It was everywhere. And, but how people kind of dealt and how they kind of took care of itself is really what was my biggest lesson uh, learning in, uh, you know, and working in, in some of these countries. So, yeah, Chef, we... Go ahead. For me, more learning about the motivational factor for each individual mm-hmm. and how to drive them to, to get what you needed done. I, mm-hmm. I don't know of a kitchen in the world where it doesn't matter what color you are, what race you are, it's one team. Right? Yep. No one gave a crap about the guy to the left of you, the right of you, what color they were, or what religion, mm-hmm. or what they did. Yeah. Were they on their way? Period. Right? Were you doing your? Were you living up to your end of the bargain? Mm-hmm. You know, so we can all succeed every day. Right? And that's the nice thing about the kitchen too. At the end of the shift, my first guy in fine dining. I mean, he would beat the crap out of us every night. You know, the clog to the back of the head, the screaming, the yelling, the nose bleeding. Right? At the end of the shift, good job. Let's go get a beer. Right? Mm-hmm. The next you started from scratch, right? Yep. Yesterday didn't count, right? Yep. You gotta learn from yesterday's mistakes, right? If you don't, then you're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. But the next day is a brand new day, you know? I, was- I love that. And Chef, I know we, we can go on forever. We want to be respectful of your time. So let me ask, you know, two more questions. One of them is, if you wouldn't be a chef, what would you do? Um, boy, oh boy. I don't think there is anything. <laughs> you know, I always say you cut me. I bleed broccoli. So I know no other either. 
it, it's amazing. We we hear this a lot because I think our you, our yeah. industry is really unique in a way. People do this because they have a love for that, and it's not just because it's a job. And and for people, this this is a lifestyle, and it's amazing. I'm not surprised that you said that. So with that, um, tell us what is one or two life lessons you have learned out of 35 years in the industry. Um, you got to make sure that w- whether you like it or not, right? You need to make sure whatever you do is something in it for somebody else, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, you're never going to get anything accomplished, right? It, 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 if people, whether they say it or not, right, what's in it for me is always a factor. Mm-hmm. You know, whether mm-hmm. they Maybe not immediately, but in the long term, it really is to a point, yep. right? And I'm not saying that in a bad way because it is in a bad right. thing, right? You know, it can make you feel good, this, that, and the other. At a certain point, it's going to burden you, right? So that there better be something in it for you. Yep. I um, I was working on a project for an environmental group. I sit on a number of boards, right? And we we're looking to change the food system in stadiums and arenas, right? Mm-hmm. And all these nonprofits are looking at it, you know, you should buy this and that and the other. And it's not affordable, right? When you're buying sustainable, this, that, and the other, yeah. right? Organic. You can't mark it up enough to put it on the menu, right? <clears throat> so we were in a meeting in Sacramento with 20 environmental groups. And I told the head guy, I said, it's just not going to work. Not the way you think it is. Mm-hmm. No one in these groups understands our industry. And, you know, ownership, the amount of profit margin, all those things. So the chef from the Sacramento Kings Arena stood up, right, after this whole thing. Because I put sustainable pork and local on my menu, and my food costs went up by $600,000, right? I looked at all these guys afterwards, and the whole meeting fell apart after that, right? So I went to the head guy and said, look, you know. I know the right way to go about it. Mm-hmm. I got to find stuff that it hits a 20 to 25% food cost. Yep. So it's not going on the menu, period, right? I said, I don't care how good an idea it is. I don't care how many, you know, corporate social responsibility platforms there are that the companies mandate this, that, the other, right? Or the GM wants it or the ownership wants it. If the chef who's making, whose food cost is, it, one point of his food cost is higher than his annual salary. That guy, and that guy has to decide whether his kids are going to camp, mm-hmm. you know, getting the bonus or, or working on that program. The kids are going to camp. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a fact, right? That guy is going to bury the program and make sure yep. it doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? He, he, a guy that's in charge of six, uh, our industry is the most disproportionate compared to the amount of money you're in charge of to what you make, right? Yep. Correct. A guy in Vegas is in charge of $100 million in F&B, right? Responsible for food costs and labor costs. One point is probably five times his annual salary. A guy like that's making a buck 50 to 200, right? Mm-hmm. It's insane, right? Mm-hmm. But he's responsible for $100 million. Nowhere is that disparaging anywhere else. Yeah, no, so, right. at 20 to 25% food costs for that guy, 
He's just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I understand. I don't blame him, right? So, it, you know, does it come down to my family? Does it come down to, to doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. You can do the right thing and make money. And I'm doing it now, right? The, since COVID hit, I was doing, I, I started or, or helped found a new environmental group in the Northwest called the Wave Foundation, right? Mm-hmm. And it's based on climate, energy, food. So, of course, I took food and I've been working on it for a long time. I did the first sustainable dinner for one of them back in 98 with the Earth Pledge Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been involved in this movement for a very long mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So how do we support local farms? How do we support BIPOC farmers, local industry, you know, and, and help these guys compete and grow, right? Mm-hmm. Pandemic hits, you know, we, he gets a call. We're trying to help Alaska fishermen. We got a foundation that wants to buy fish, right? Send these guys out in Alaska to go and fish cod and, and sable fish. Mm-hmm. I mean, 100,000 pounds, not a small amount, right? Mm-hmm. No, sorry, 60,000 pounds. Still a lot of money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Process it, take it off the boat, portion it, bring it down to Seattle. Can you get rid of the fish? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not a problem. We can give it away. Right? So I called Tom Douglas and Tariq Rattero in Seattle. You know, we started looking at what we can do. We started handing out fish to tribal members. You know, that's part of their culture, seafood and fish. Right? So it's grown into what it is today that I sent you guys. Right? Right. We started handing out fish with other relief organizations, right? Then we got to a point of figuring out, you know what, these communities are not being taken care of in the appropriate manner, right? The USDA boxes are fine, but they're very generic. The Feeding America, all these things are not, while they're okay, they're not addressing individual cultural and ethnic needs, right? Mm -hmm. A box for a Latino, there isn't a box for an Asian American, an African American, you know, a Native American. They're just not appropriate, right? <clears throat> so we started to work with the, the tribes of the Columbia River Gorge. Justin put together from the Wave Foundation a working group with the leaders of these communities, six different tribes, um, and said, and we started asking questions. If we're to provide food boxes for you, what do you need in them? What do you want in them? Wow. You know, so it addressed, tri- you know, cultural needs, ceremonial needs, spiritual needs, sacred foods, mm-hmm. all those, along with staple items, right? So Justin went and got the funding, right? And there's been a lot of missteps, right? Um, but we're doing it on a daily basis now. We're wow. feeding we shifted focus, you know, when the pandemic hit, our business died, right? Mm-hmm. Convention centers, stadiums, I, you know, we dropped 90%, 95% in a matter of less than two months. So th- this was a godsend for us, right? But also a new approach and a new way of doing food boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Most people don't know the first thing, you know, the USDA boxes, we were helping distribute those because the way I looked at it, they had the staple items, 
right? Right, right. Tomatoes, carrots, onions, you know, and some other stuff. And dairy, right? We're, we're distributing it. They came back to us. We're lactose intolerant. Can you help get rid of the dairy? We, mm -hmm. we can't use it. We don't want it to go to waste. You know, not realizing or even thinking that they're nomadic people. They didn't travel with cows, right? <laughs> it's not part of their culture, right? Right. So we're purchasing buffalo meat from tribal members, wild rice, you know, beans, different foods, and putting it in those boxes. Yeah. Elk, literally trying to ensure that the buffalo get to the slaughterhouse and that the tribes can get back the heads and the hides for ceremonial purposes or whole salmon for ceremonial purposes. Mm -hmm. Next wow. Monday at the Motor Center, we're, we're one of the tribal guys who we purchased salmon from is going over there and working with the chef and showing her how to smoke salmon in the tribal manner. We're doing 2,000 pounds of fish. Wow. Processing it, portioning it, and handing it back out to the tribes. So, so this is even a tradition being handed down also. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right? I mean, at the beginning of COVID, I had wow. grandiose and trying to do it, buying canning jars, preserving jars, right. buying the product and let them continue to teach and put up product for the winter. We weren't able to do it because of COVID and putting groups of people together. But mm -hmm. once this thing is over, that's, that idea is going right back into production. Wow. Right? I, I got one of my guys to donate 8,000 pounds of venison bones to make stock and got distributed. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I love the idea of the foundation and you guys too. If any of the listeners want to know a little bit more about the foundation, how can they find out about it? The Wave Northwest is the website. Mm -hmm. We're their food partner, uh, my company, and, and we've been doing this. And we've been doing it at the same price model as the USDA, you know? So we were asked during Christmas to support a, a school district that wasn't, the school wasn't able to produce boxes because the school shut down for the holidays, right? Yep, right. So yeah. right before Christmas, they had no food. It's like, well, what's the makeup of the community? They tell me 85% Latino. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, very simple. We put together a Christmas tamale box, 150 Christmas tamale boxes. We put in the masa, the tomatillos, the corn husks, pork, chicken, fish, into the boxes, rice, beans, cheese, so they could continue, you know, wow. on the West Coast, for most Mexican families, Christmas tamales are a staple. Mm -hmm. There is no about tamales, right? It's a Correct. huge deal. So we were able to help them continue their tradition. Wow. You know, the biggest problem I see that we're trying to address and we're going to the USDA and others with it, right now, food service companies, distributors are, are putting these boxes together. Not restaurants, not chefs, not food service companies, mm -hmm. right? It, it's got to shift. It's got to be us doing these boxes not companies that don't understand the needs of the community. Mm -hmm. Who cares more than people in the hospitality industry about people in need? We do more charity work than any other organization in the country. What chef isn't hit up to do stuff each and every day? Mm -hmm. Each and every day. It's who we are, right? Yep. yep. And the bigger the name, the more stuff they do. 
right? Yeah. Bigger events. We've all raised millions upon millions of dollars for charities. It's just who we are, right? So we're looking for that paradigm shift to get the food service industry now to take over. It's not going to cut anybody out of the deal, right? No, no. Well, it's going to enhance it. It's going to enhance it because yeah. the the exactly. goal will be met uh, even better because of our professional. Agreed. Right, professionists, you know, to, to work from the ground up to do this stuff right. It's just not being done right. Mm -hmm. Right. The other thing we looked at going back to with the shift, I realized, and we did a lot of military bases with food trucks in the beginning, right, and then shifted because it wasn't easy work, right. There's a lot of protocols, a lot of things, as Joe knows, right? Just not easy. I went back to the military bases because I realized those guys aren't unemployed. They're mm -hmm. not laying off a service. Yeah. Although the biggest problem right now, we shipped 50,000 pounds of seafood to the Armed Services YMCA in Alaska. And I personally, with a buddy of mine, supplied turkeys for the Armed Services why at um, a marine base out here, 50% uh, of service member spouses are currently unemployed. Oof. So they're hard, it's hard enough for them to make ends meet on their salary to begin with, right? Yeah. And then to have one member not working is just really tough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that, thank sure. you for sharing that. That was yeah. Just, I mean, that's uh, an yeah. amazing story, and I I yeah. can see. I made some notes here for our listeners. I believe there's a lot of them which would love to support. So, chef, if anybody wants to know more about it or support you and your efforts and what you do and and connect with you, how can people get a hold of you? Give them my email and, and uh, address. Feel free. Great. Absolutely. Chef, that was amazing. I yeah. can believe we come almost up to an hour uh, and I know we can have these conversations all day long, but we really appreciate your time being part of uh, this today. And, and Joe and I know that time is the real only value people have and you giving so generously of your time means a lot. So with that, I want to say thank you. Chef Joe, any closing words from your side? Again, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, you know, being a colleague and a friend of yours is, is just such an honor. So thank you. Thanks Jeff. guys for taking the time. I appreciate it. Same here. We appreciate you being part of this and hopefully we can do a follow-up on this because I, I know people want to know more about the organization, want to know more about the foundation and how to aid the efforts you are in, uh, which is really amazing. So thanks for doing that. With that, thank you to the listeners and we hear you guys on our next podcast. Take care. Thanks.